Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to The Mentor, I'm Mark Boris. Gary Smith, welcome to The Mentor, mate. Thanks for having me. Your business is a big business. You're the CEO and co-founder of Biopack, um, and we'll unpack that a little bit later. Probably want to know a little bit about who the dude is. You're not like a spring chicken, neither am I, neither one of us are, which means both of us have done a lot of stuff prior to Biopack, in your case. Um, tell me a little bit about who you are, what you used to do. Yeah, I think, Mark, um, straight from school, um, I guess a little out of necessity. I look for something to do. Um, I found myself in the technology industry, which in the late 80s and early 90s was an emerging industry. And I guess through my career, I felt like I need to get into a new business because the established businesses may be a little bit harder to get into. More competitive, you mean? Absolutely more competitive, more players, and um, people are very loyal. So it's hard to break into, indust- break into industries, maybe find new partners or customers. So it certainly wasn't by design because I was 17 at the time. So it just happened to be working at a, at a computer store and there was a shortage of memory chips. And all I was trying to do was make enough money to go into uni. We didn't have HECS where I grew up in South Africa. So you either had money and went to uni or you didn't. So yeah, I started trading computer chips between uh, companies that built computers. You, know, computer you, you were trading them? I was buying them from one, yep. keeping them. The prices were going up because of a shortage, waiting a few weeks and reselling them. Really? Yep. So there was there a was... massive shortage in, it was about 88, 89, when there was a huge shortage. Was that a shortage in South Africa or a, a shortage, shortage internationally? And, yeah. uh, and so you were basically um, arbitraging. So you, you were buying one price and waiting for the price to, in, to the inflation to kick it up. And then you went off and supplied it to whoever it is had the demand for it. Correct. But with a shortage, you... with a shortage, you know, you wait a couple of days. People needed it in order to build a computer and resell it. They needed chips. But but how did Gary Smith um, arbitrage? I mean, like, is there a market? Was there an exchange for this sort of stuff? No. no. So I worked in one store in the center of Johannesburg, yeah. where I saw, you know, my boss was struggling to buy the product. So I went to look and I found a couple of shops. I must have found a hundred shops. Found shops, bought chips. And then phoned a whole lot of shops and saying, if you need, I've got. And at the time, maybe they didn't, but a few days later, they did. They were hustling. Hustling. Street fighting. Yeah, street fighting. Yeah, Absolutely. It, it, I still street old, fight. How old were you? 17, 18. But that's an old school, uh, that's like pool hall stuff. I'm, like, I really don't know. People have asked me that question. I think at the time, yes, I, I, you know, I didn't really know ambitions of building a business. I just wanted to, at the time, I wanted to, you know, build funds for uni and I wanted to, you know, just start making money, enjoying life, I guess. Well, did your old man do this sort of stuff? No, no. A, a good man, but uh, no, he didn't hustle. 
Right. You know, it wasn't major, huge business plan ideas. It was let me make a hundred bucks for this week or two hundred bucks for next week. But I was very fortunate. I think luck is very much a part of everybody's, you know, path. If you don't have it, you can. The harder you work, the more lucky you are. I will yeah. say that. But a lot of luck that there was a massive demand. I think it was the 1988 Solar Olympics that decided to use technology. And that's what drew a lot of the demand. In hindsight, I look back to try and establish what, what created the shortage. And so, yeah, I mean, we had uh, sanctions in South Africa, late 80s, 90s. There was no IBM. There was no Dell. There was no major um, manufacturers. So there were only local branded and produced computers. And so that's why the demand was much higher there. We couldn't import a full product. And so the, the, I guess making a hundred bucks, it just, that little spark is what made me think I can make more money. I can build something over here. It wasn't initially what got me into it because I don't know. I can't put my finger at what it was, but the hunger once I got the bug initially was what, you know, enhanced it and made, made me build. That's a quite a fascinating um, start for a young 17 year old Gary the Hustler. Just hustling for hundred bucks, 150 bucks, $200. Did you keep increasing it? So it went rapidly. So yeah, what happened was it got bigger and bigger, and uh, but then I couldn't get enough product locally. So I went onto the World Wide Web in the 90s, early late 80s, which was called Asian Sources. <laughs> it was a magazine about that thick. And with technology, if you wanted TV, computer parts, you look through Asian Sources and literally phoned up multiple places overseas and we started bringing in. So maybe a thousand bucks at a time. I it was rands, so it was a, a, it was a fraction of dollars, but it was small amounts that we were bringing in, and we started bringing in and bringing in, and I guess through sort of eighty nine ninety, it just it just snowballed, and then we started thinking, okay, w what else can we be doing? So we started bringing in, well, it's it's a technical term, but a motherboard, the board that controls yep. a computer. Then we started bringing in power supplies and cases and monitors. And three years later, we were bringing in a whole lot of components, and that's when we started assembling a local, our own machine, both, both laptop and PC. And we built a business in South Africa through when I left in 99 to, you know, one of the largest manufacturers of PCs there. I think we were doing two to 3,000, you know, PCs a month at the time. And um, yeah, when I decided to emigrate, um, that business listed, and um, and then I moved here. It's an interesting period, the nineties. That's uh, Apple's period when they brought out those very colourful um, yeah. PCs, which I remember. You know, orange ones and green ones, bright green ones, and I seem to recall a red one and a blue one. And it was a very clever idea. When we think back now, it was very early in the computer development or the PC development period, and particularly laptops. My God. I mean, I don't, I don't think I knew anyone had a laptop in the early 90s. That was pretty crazy, adventurous stuff for a reasonably young guy in South Africa. Uh, what were you thinking to yourself or were you just doing the transaction? I, I've never been a big strategy person. I've been, you know, a lot of your d direction and your success in life is just by the next step. I was just taking the logical next step. So, yes, the, I've always, since those early days, I don't think school days, but since those early days, late, like early 90s, I then developed a very um, strong drive to succeed. So there was a drive to succeed and be transactional, but there was also, you know, I felt like, this was something that could be bigger than it was. I mean, technology was new. Our first laptop, you mentioned no one had laptops in the 90s. Our first laptop was 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 a crate. It was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. it was that big and that thick. And we actually built the app. And, and to walk around, you know, I was thought I was very cool walking around my laptop. I probably could have got a shoulder injury carrying it. It was so heavy. But yeah, I mean, 
it was just it just was it was a snowball it was a lack of being in that position at the time but um i guess i've got a very inquisitive mind of what 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 can we build next what can we improve on next you know what markets can we expand into and that came through i think if you look i didn't land up going to university i mean the plans were to sell enough chips to go to uni i gave it a bash but didn't spend much more than a year there but um i started working i, I had a partner from 88 to 91 and i guess that was my mentor and that was you know maybe that's what created my drive because his work ethic and um his mentoring of me not in not intentionally we were partners and he was maybe 15 years old than me i think that's what probably created the drive and the knowledge that i needed and and hold on to since uh, since the beginnings of my career what happened to that business then it was one business that turned into another business but yes then in 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 about 97 we decided that we wanted to emigrate and come to australia and so um there was an opportunity to list that business together with four or five other business businesses my view in computer hardware was people were starting to understand that the valuations of hardware businesses were not exactly the same valuations of software and internet businesses so i had the opportunity to combine our businesses together with an internet uh, and um software business and we listed it and yeah so i served where, through where? in south africa, south africa yeah. yeah on the johannesburg stock exchange so you listed on the joburg stock exchange yeah. prior to coming to australia as an immigrant correct yeah and was the objective though to uh, put yourself in a position where you could um get some liquidity in your shares so that yes. you could actually have some money to you know bring your way bring pay way forward here 100% and and a funny story on that is absolutely the idea was i was going to either sell or list the business served three years i worked 50 hours a day gave everything i could but they knew from day one that my intention was to serve the three years and immigrate as part of the listing correct requirements. manage it run it i went into a very different role i sold a hardware business into the business was there for about five six months and this was um a list of company that put nine businesses together and for for a year i saw nine disparate businesses running completely separately separate development departments more in technology than hardware as in software separate technology departments separate developers separate front ends one would get a lead and it would be an enterprise software they didn't have and they wouldn't pass it on to the other so within you i took over as i ran, i moved into a chief operating officer role where i started consolidating all the businesses and doing training with all the businesses and just bring it together as one sort of cohesive unit and that's what I did uh for the few years that I was so there. building efficiencies correct like business rhythm and and a proper efficiency in other words we all work off each other yep not against each other and you can cut that way you can cut some costs out too well the cost was not the major objective but it was a big benefit because you know non software developing businesses but yeah it was it was received well it had you know multiple platforms of software plus this hardware backbone but it just didn't work together and that was very frustrating for me so that's when i sort of bullied my way into the role to say let me put this whole thing together we went on road shows countrywide we brought the teams together um and yeah i think it made of one cohesive unit with multiple products you come to australia yep that thing's been set up did you sell out what would you do with any listed business you don't want to just put all the shares in the market and flood it i had a deal where um i could sell um 136 of my shares over 36 months yeah and yeah funny story is each month i'd look to say okay i got to sell if i didn't i had to wait till the end of 5 years so i would have have to hold that in that that equity so but i wanted to come here and establish something for my family from day one so i had to sell said cash flow for 36 months correct but i used to come to the end of each of those periods and think it's one buck it's going to be 10 bucks why am i selling and my wife said look we're selling because we got to raise money in order to immigrate so begrudgingly i i sold and i listened to every one of those 36 months and i thought what a fool what is she forcing me to do well 
we we lived through the dot com era three years later. Yeah. So I can only tell you it would have been thank God a minor fraction of what I what I landed up exiting with than to what if I didn't listen to my wife. So maybe that's a lesson. Yeah. So I mean, really, what you're saying though is uh, you're talking about the dot com crash. Correct. Yeah. As opposed to the dot com. Um, boom, boom. Yeah, yeah. I, I managed to through luck, and I think luck is very much a part of you know your whole career. Sell through the boom, and then if I wouldn't have, if I would have listened to my my gut at the time, hold, it's going to be fifty bucks, sixty bucks. We're building an empire over here. It would have been for cents. And what I, did you, when you came to Australia? Uh, what did you kick off? Coming to a new country, and I'm not sure how many people do it differently, but for me it was very daunting. I, I felt for five years I was living in someone else's house. You know, I was you know I didn't know the territory, slightly different culture. The last thing I wanted to do was to do something different. So I went straight back into computer hardware, and it was way too mature and developed for me to even have a have a chance. I didn't have nearly enough capital. I had like, I came here, you know, with a home, which was very like fortunate and some money to start a business. But um, yeah, it was not the right thing to go straight into a new country, new culture, and new business. So I, I was very fortunate as I got here um, by luck, together with a partner that I, that, that, that I found here in Australia, um, we were just going to auctions and saying, okay, we know hardware, let's go buy hardware and sell it an auction, street fighting, I guess, like the chip days. And there we were in these rooms where we have these massive auctions where there's all these computers and laptops going more than retail. And I'm thinking, what's going on? I can't make a business out of that. But in the corner, there were routers and access servers. We, we all know what that is today, but in 2000, 2001, no one knew what a router and access, really the high-end networking product was. So I, I said to the administrators, you know, how much is that? And they said, oh, we don't even know what it is. You know, I said, I'll give you a grand. And they said, great, you know. You... So for three years, we were the scavengers. We got a, all the administrators would come to us and work with us to come and get the high-end product. And we started paying the better price for it. Administrators, you mean as in uh, people who had been appointed to run a business has gone broke? OneTel, Ansett, yep. Davnet. It was the dot-com uh, crash. Yep. There were so many of those. You know, honestly, we were on speed dial with most of the liquidators and administrators because that product they couldn't put on auction for the, cons like, you know, the consumer to purchase. So, yeah, we built a business by buying that product, phoned all over the world to find people that would buy it overseas because there was not much of a market share, and we just started exporting it and selling it as we bought it. How important is it for... Like you might say it's luck, but how important is it in terms of being successful in what you're doing there? For example, is it for you to be an ex have have really good expertise in relation to say in this case the hardware and knowing what a good what a good price is to buy for it, but also more importantly to know where the demand for it will be so you can shift it. Because if you didn't know have enough expertise, you might have gone in and started trying trying to buy you know, laptops and all these other things which was heavily competed for instead of going there and offering an administrator and then building a relationship with the administrator to buy something for a thousand bucks, which you can, the administration just wants to get rid of it. Give me something. Um, and there's probably not a lot of the buyers for it because they don't really know how to, how, to, how to shift it. It's critical. Like everything sounds like, well, that was instant. It wasn't. It was a slow path. It's critical to, I've never, there are many people that can say, right, I'm going to put a million dollars in this business. It's going to lose money for three, four years, and then it's going to be huge. I don't know how to do that. I'll buy for a buck. And I sell for a buck. I'm a hustler. I'm a street fighter. When with opportunity first came up, and there were 40 of these, you know, Cisco switches available, um, I bought one. And then I started hunting around, and I sold it. And I thought that was easy. So then I bought another. And then literally there was a warehouse up in in, in North Sydney where they had 40 in a warehouse. And I I bought one, and then another, and another. Then I bought all 35 of the balance. I knew I could sell it. Each time. I found an opportunity. We developed this. Uh, we I found a, you know maybe four or five or six businesses in Europe and in the, in the states that would purchase it. I'd send an email, and literally there would be 
WTS or WTB, wanting to sell or wanting to buy. So I'd send an email saying wanting to sell and I'd list what I have. Started a whole network internationally of the five of us selling to each other. And literally we get emails every day, wanting to sell. I'd look, can I sell it in Australia? No. And I'd send it out, wanting to sell or wanting to buy. Maybe I had a demand here of someone who wanted the product because we did turn the business into, we went out to customers and we said, what product do you need? We sort of built a platform really. Correct. Because you, you actually were looking for bid and offers. So there was little risk. I knew when I was buying it initially that I could sell it for a product. And th you know, through you know, 12 to 18 months, we knew exactly. I'd walk and I'd say, that's worth a grand I can sell it for two, just take it. And we, with confidence, that's fine. You can buy when you know you're gonna sell and take some risk. If there's risk, offer less. So it became, but it's a period of time of building knowledge. So yes, initially I didn't know, so I tiptoed into it. Are you by nature a risk taker? I think I am. What does it mean a risk taker is that um, if I have conviction, if I believe that it's gonna work, I'll, I'll commit everything. Yeah, I've, you know, it's not going to be day one when I'm starting a business. It's not going to be day one when I hear a concept or think of a concept. It's when I'm established, okay, and 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 maybe I've got some knowledge or a little bit of expertise in what I'm doing. Then I I have conviction, if you like. I risk, I take risks with maybe a with less risk than you think because I think I establish knowledge about what I want to do, and I have real confidence that I can achieve it. I mean, you've actually sort of got nearly got a buyer in your back pocket. If you're buying something, for for that business, if you look at the that business, the the, the trading, the the high end network of products, it was yes, definitely, in a new country, learning it. I mean, I travelled the whole country. I spent four or five years doing this, and for me, it was a stepping stone. So that wasn't. I didn't exercise a lot of risk there. I knew what I was selling before I was before I bought it. For me, it was a stepping stone to learn my new home, to learn what this country is all about, to learn about you know. There's small nuances and, and, and differences in every country that you go to. And after five years, I sold my equity to my partner. It wasn't a very big business, but I felt like, right, I'm not in the business I want to be in. You know, I, I want to create something. So this, I want to build something. This is 2006, I guess. Correct. So uh, this is the part I'm really interested in. I mean, I've, I've dug around a little bit about Gary, but what I want to find out about is now the, the idea. Where did the idea come from for Buyback? So there I was looking for the rest of my life. I actually termed that, you know, my, my LinkedIn profile really, said. You're seriously looking at the rest of your life. I said, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? It's not a stepping stone. It's not the next business. What am I going to be convicted to do absolutely for, for the rest of my days? And um, It's a big and, question. Yeah, and I, and I looked around and I took at least a year to look around and find, you know, what I believe that I could get really my hands dirty and build. And I happened to bump into my, my business partner, Richard Fine. And Richie, you know, who clearly was put on the planet to save it. Um, you don't get, you know, you know uh, better people in the world that really have, you know, the world as uh, as the objective of saving the planet as they, as everything they're all about. And within a few months, um, I learned so much from, much from him. But he had this vision. He saw a particular fruit juice company and he saw their cup and it was polystyrene. And he looked at it and he said, how can we change that? Yeah, that's pretty, pretty crazy though, like... Look, he came from a plastics manufacturer background, and he so he knew the, I guess, the damage of plastics, and he wanted to, you know, change the world because of his past and where he's going. Guilt? Um, I don't know about guilt, but I think that he saw that there was an alternate. He saw there was a future, and he saw there was a, that he could that, that there was a different way of doing things, but potentially a little bit of guilt. But all he came to me at the time, we had a mutual friend, and he said, "I've got an idea for a product. I want to I want to bring in a container of this product, but I need finance." 
and and his mate introduced us and I said yeah I can finance it I, you know I was looking for things to do maybe doing some some consulting and some financing in the middle just to you know pay my bills this is hustling again basically Correct. so hustling through I brought I said final you know my, my rules with helping people out is that obviously you know some form of agreement and and personal surety from their wives then I know I'm going to be paid <laughs> so yeah they put the first container together and they brought it in and a month or two later I said how's it going they came to me again and said we've got another idea of the first product was um, was like a tray for coals to use for the avocados. It was a plant fiber tray. Then they came to me with another product, a bamboo product they want to finance. I said, how's the first one going? And they said, um, not going so well, um, but we still got a lot. I said, hold on, hold on. I- I'm not a financier. I'm a partner. I'm taking risk over here. It's not a, it's not a quit. You don't, don't have any assets to back up, you know, uh, uh, the paying me if you don't sell the product. I tell you what, I love your idea. I love what you guys are all about. Let's start a business and go 50-50 in the business. I think I can run a business. I can definitely finance the beginnings of that business. And you've got all this expertise and knowledge of the plastics and the plant-based industry. And um, I think we'll make a dynamic team. And I guess that was the birth of, of where we are today. Richard Fine, previous expertise in what plastics do. Yeah. Did you ever have to adopt the passion or how, how did that all work? How, how did it become infected into your body? I think... Um, Initially, it was a very hard two years, mostly 2000 and from 2008 to 2010 was very, very difficult years because the idea we first had was to take a plastic polymer, I don't want to get too technical. There were lots of manufacturers in Melbourne that were making plastic bags and we thought we can take a plant-based polymer and change them to a compostable plant-based bag. That's what we initially did. Uh, the financing of the containers was about a polymer and selling it to them and it didn't work. So when we first got into the business, the idea, Richard's passion was to change all plastics manufacturing in Australia to, you know, this um, plant-based product. And that's what we did for a year and a half. And we, 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 we I put a lot of money into it. And, and Mark, that's not like the hustling because I had no sell. I had a buy. I had a period of convincing and educating people. I had no guarantee of sell whatsoever. So this was what now I strongly believed in. You know, in, in life, you know, you're, 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 what you see is this. Okay, so my world was this, and I knew it pretty well. This was all of a sudden outside what my world was about. So the, the first four or five months of learning about, you know, the alternates and learning about the industry, Richie has a passion to save the world. Operationally is where my skill came in. And 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 so we did try and sell that polymer, and we did go to Melbourne to all the local manufacturers. And of then we plastic, had a, of plastic. Plastics, yeah. yeah. And then we had a small event in the world, you might recall, called the GFC. Yeah. You definitely recall called yeah, the GFC. I sure do. And um, no one wanted to deal with us. So here we are putting pretty much all the business money we started with the business gone. People were looking to reduce costs. People were looking to save money. They were retrenching. The last thing they were going to do is spend more money because the environment, to be honest, it didn't take much you know, credence in their evaluation of where they should be going operation. This is really important about disruption. Retooling is a big um, factor in constraining disruption to some extent. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Cut through this at a really rapid pace, uh, but uh, it's important we get to the biopack, um, the premise of what biopack was doing. And what happened here is, you know, Gary uh, teaming up with Richard, they experienced, you know, they had this disruptive technology, let's call it. Um, but it's different to having a disruptive business model. Disruptive business model is a lot different to having disruptive technology. Um, and a lot of times the reason for that is um, the technology can have a problem in terms of you have to ask someone to adopt the technology, that means they have to retool, have to change their processes and systems. And if there's no demand on the other end of them for them to do, they're going to say, listen, we think it's a great idea, but right now we're happy because everyone's buying our plastic bottles or plastic bags or whatever they're buying. Correct. There's no object, there's no uh, real reason for us to adopt your thing and all it's going to do is cost me money. And you overlay that with the GFC, it's a, it's a cost-saving period. That's a survival period. We're not going to invest any capital to retool. Was that the issue you had? We had issues of well, they're not going to increase their cost of sales. They're not going to retool. Um, and they also didn't think the market had any appetite for it. You know, from up until about 2015, which is a good seven, eight years on, no one had the appetite or, or there was just lack of education and knowledge about sustainability. So, so yes, we went through a period where we completely had no one to buy our product. So, so it was a period where I was extremely happy. I mean, often I tell the story that um, in my first business when I got to Australia, we were making money. You know, it was a good trading business and I was desperately upset. I was not happy, not upset, that's the wrong word. I was not happy because I wasn't building something, I wasn't creating. That's what, what, I, what I knew to do. Here I was in a business three, four years on, we were losing copious amounts of money and I was happy. I really believed in it. I believed that we had a, an, a, a responsibility to change consumer behavior. We had a responsibility to educate. We had an opportunity through very luck and privilege to understand what the options are where not many people did. I think that's what drove me because we had not only the GFC 2008, nine, we had three, four years of losing complete momentum, losing the money that we invested. And so I went into street fighting mode. And street fighting mode was at the end of 2009, Again, through luck, we were at a trade show where we were trying to simply educate about all packaging being compostable and plant-based. Now, just explain the trade show. That's important. Yep. I mean, you just said that like as everybody knows about this, but you go and set up a kiosk and trade show. In the trade show, there's probably every plastic uh, operator showing off their, their products because you know, anybody who might be needed a plastic uh, bottle or bag or whatever it is, their, their particular item they're trying to sell at Woolworths or Coles or wherever it is, um, they go to these trade shows and they try and look at all the stuff. And you're here you are on your little kiosk um, showing them an alternative source. Correct. Um, so you might have been a little bit displaced relative to everybody else, a bit different. Sometimes that works. Well, we were very different. There was absolutely no one like us. We had we had this barrel we used to roll in and unpack this spider-like display and put a, There was a picture of soil. There was a picture of compost. So you had like plastics, bottles, um, food service items for restaurants, and then this soil. I mean, I actually wanted to bring in soil and have a pile of compost in the middle of it. Of, but, but unfortunately, you know, they, they wouldn't let us do that in the trade show. But 
it was an education platform in trade shows. It was like there was no viral marketing. There's a little bit of, of social media and viral marketing, but it was the way that the whole industry came to us. So, yeah, we set up a trade show. At the time, remember, we were trying to change manufacturers, so plastic bags, even packets of letters. We actually had a packet of letters. One great farmer in, that we that we partnered with in Victoria, they made a packet of you know baby spinach and lettuce made from a home compostable plant-based packet. So we had these couple of technologies that we wanted to educate the market and tell the market about. Um, but it wasn't working because no one wanted, no one wanted to retool, as you say, no one wanted to invest. And it was really, really, you know, what do we do next? And when I was walking out the trade show, I happened to bump into a Taiwanese manufacturer that was looking to produce a compostable coffee cup. They were looking to, you know, man, you know, partner with people and look at producing it. They had some, a little bit of experience. Um, there's a lot of a backstory to that, but we've got limited time. And through that chance meeting, we started manufacturing and trialing a cup, and that was in 2009. But as someone who's been a hustle, you know, all your life, all your business life, what does that tell you about making sure that you're at the moment, you're at the event? Look, I think work ethic is everything. I mean, maybe there are a lot of smart people that can work less than I do, but I'd wake, I'd get to those trade shows an hour before. I'd set it up. I'd make sure every item was correctly placed. I'd stay the entire time. When they said you get those announcements, there's an hour to go before closes, half an hour. I'd notice everyone walking off the stands. I'd I'd wait until there was no one in that hall. So I think being there is critical. Not necessarily just a trade show, just everything in your business and in what you do. Being there is um, working in your business is as important as working on your business. In my experience, yep. so yeah, I think it's critical. And again. Uh, it's important. There are many people that can have plans and forecasts, and I'm a next step per person. Here, because my next step made me bump into Angela at the trade show, it was like I need to think. I need to be curious. I need to understand because I needed a stopgap because for me, the polymer was the big business. That's where you know the big opportunity was. Uh, today, our business is that stopgap. So where you start is not necessarily where you arrive. Today, our business is the disposable packaging in the um, in the restaurant and catering and stadium markets, um, but it didn't start that way. Yeah, it's because I know people who are often in startups and they go, oh, well, I, I don't want to waste too much time. I've got to learn how to say no. Um, well, because I don't have enough time, and, I, and my usual answer to them is, uh, don't have enough time to do what? Uh, well, I need to spend more time on my, uh, you know, my life and, uh, you know, have more things to do that are interesting to me. Well, hang on a minute, if you're in business and unless you've got a massive cash flow in and less out, in other words, you're making good profits, you're nearly obliged for, to pretty much cast everything else aside for the time being. And you, the opportunities, you can't cherry pick opportunities. You just have to be there to wait till the opportunities come to you. Yeah. And you've got to be there. You've got to, you've got to take every opportunity. You've got to go to every meeting. You've got to have every dinner, every lunch, every event. Um, you know every trade show, whatever it is you particularly what you are in particular doing, and you're sitting there looking for the opportunity as it walks past. And sometimes it it could be like you just said, half an hour after the trade show closes, someone just taps you on the shoulder, and and, and it, that's not luck. Luck only occurs if you are there. Yeah, it can't. Luck is not going to occur if you're not there, and that's hustling. 
I, I agree, but you know, and I think that is a skill, and maybe a skill that I do have is that you've got to give a hundred percent to everything. I know people that um, potentially can work less, but I don't know how to do that. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's it's a skill and a disease. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because you just, I love what I do, and I, and my advice to anyone is, if you don't love it, don't do it, because you won't be good at it. And I don't know if you'll succeed at it. I love what I do. So spending my whole life, it's my hobby, it's my passion. You know what we're doing with, you know, in Australia, what we're doing, you know, with the environment, what we're doing with our products, what we're doing with education, what we're doing with government. It's a drive and a skill and a passion, and it's what I want to be doing. And I think that's critical. Um, and that's possibly how I found the success that I did is by absolutely being there all the time. I, and I, you know, um, I wouldn't say I'm the first to arrive in my business because there are people that get there at six o'clock in the morning. I've got the most amazing, dedicated team. I wouldn't say I'm the last to leave, although I'm, you know, I'm there seven, eight at night because they're people that work harder than me. But a lot of when you build is, um, it's about the team. And it's about who they obviously look up to you in any business. They obviously look up to you and look to you and you get to de define, you know, the teams, you know, successes and failures and behaviors. And my, my firm belief is you've got to lead by example. So, yeah, it's been full on for the 15, 16 years. And it's the way I love it and the way I want it to be. So so Richard wanted to save the world or or change the world in terms of plastic use. But you, it seems to me, wanted to change people's behavior. That's different. Yeah, and, and that's what, you know, Richie hasn't been operational in our business for a long time, but he's just been in the business to, you know, I guess mentor and guide. We have a sustainability division and we have a marketing division. And even with me, with new technologies, just making me very aware of different technologies. For me, education has been everything. I've never sold a product. Uh, not in the 90s in our old business, which is also emerging technology and education, but very much this business is about emerging technologies and education. When we go, Mark, and we uh, pitch to a large QSR or a large corporate or a large supermarket, it's not about cost. I give them a 10-page presentation of a solution. And what I believe the solution is going to be, you know, for um, their product for end of life, for the environment, for Australia, you know, and we in other countries as well. Now, we give them a true, sustainable, vulnerable, ethical, and honest solution. And then we'll talk about the cost later. We understand there's a financial implication and they've got to understand the economics, but that's, you know, that's in meeting 10 and that's the, the end of the conversation. They've got to buy into being part of our influencing club, if you like. So, because everybody's influencer. It's a lot of people influence, you know, um, good and some people influence bad. In our industry, with plastics and some greenwashing, there are a lot of influences, and not even maliciously, maybe through a lack of understanding or education, they're influencing incorrectly. So honestly, 50, 60% of my day for the last 15 years has been going and educating and, 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 and teaching and training about our philosophy, about the direction we want, you know, the Australian landscape to take. And yes, as a byproduct of that, an important one, you know, it's like critical for our business. We sell more product. Because disruption using new technology, which is, that's typical disruption, and the business model itself, which talks about sustainability and, you know, like it, it has to be something that not only is sustainable, but actually you can make money out of for the future to be proper disruption. But dis disruption by definition requires change of behavior. And uh, change of behavior requires education. You know, you can't change anyone's behavior unless they be, they can become convinced that what you're proposing is better for them, better for the world, better, 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 whatever the betters are, all of them. And it doesn't take one presentation. It takes a long time. Um, and it also takes um, a, 
a really convincing story and not as, not as in a you know Peter Pan story it has to be real uh, and and the timing has to be right the times have to be in your favor I mean back in 2009 and 8 the times were not really right um, what was it do you think that assisted your success to where you are where biopack is today um, in terms of the timing so you know what ev- what events in the world have started to make buyers of your product to become more open to the conversation and more open to being educated and more open to make change uh, it's an interesting question because i've always been on the belief that the consumer made the change before the government before large corporate so if you look at those early days in 2009 and 10 you know we try to go through the established distribution market because every cafe restaurant uh, uh, stadium whatever it is they buy you know, potentially just all their packaging, all their packaging, their meat and their cheese, all from a sort of food service distributor. It was a very established market and they didn't understand our philosophy. And so we, we battled for a while and then we drove the country, like literally cafe to cafe, every step, one at a time. You know, Richie in the car driving and me hopping out, walking with a bag, in, literally with a little box, putting it on the table. We try to go through the distribution model. They didn't believe us. They didn't believe in our concept and our philosophy. So slowly we started building up this demand of product and this customer base. But it's there's no quick, I mean, that was 2009, 10, 11, 12, 13. We, and then all of a sudden, the, 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 the distribution market said, hey, you know, I mean, maybe because they lost a few customers to us, maybe because they started believing, maybe because we started, we had very good, we always believed in marketing. We've never outsourced it. We've always built our own sort of websites and done our own marketing internally. And that was, I guess, building the technology in the business and the marketing in the business is very much, I guess, in my sweet spot and what I spent huge amount, I still spend huge amounts of time in making sure we've got the best of breed automation and systems in our business. That's a that's a day-to-day passion and that's true. In terms of delivery, you mean? In terms of delivery, make, having making sure we've got inventory, making sure we are supporting our customers with knowledge, education, everything has to be automated. And we've got a lot of people, but automation just brings efficiency and makes, you know, a lot of reason why people deal with us today is because, and it's my passion and it's my absolute dedication is to make sure we are just super reliable. Yeah, because like if I'm going to replace one thing with something else that's a bit alternative, but is different, yep. I want to make sure that I'm not going to suffer in terms of the delivery or, or, or you know, the last mile, the, the, the quality of the product, is the product going to be equal to what it's being pitched to me as? You know, maybe the price is slightly different, but one thing is I don't want to do is suffer in efficiencies. 100%. Because I've got my customers that are at risk and my business is then at risk. And you sell food or you yeah. sell coffee yeah. and you're passionate about that and you know that. You don't want to win. We the people, hopefully, you never hear about because it's just, it's there when you need it. So where's, just in terms of Biopack's impact in Australia, for example, we won't talk about overseas at the moment, where do we see the products? If you could name a few of the products that we might be more commonly um, aware of. Yeah, so, you know, again, food service packaging is, is is a lot of where we are. So we're talking about the coffee cup that you walk away from a cafe with the takeaway container, you know, the, the timber cutlery, uh, the bag that you carry away. Uh, just like the chip days when we started with the chip, you know, we started with a cup. Um, and now we have a full range of plant-based um, disposable packaging. Can I just ask, when you say plant-based, what does that really mean? That it's derived from a plant or like, what does it mean? So yeah, I mean, paper's plant-based, but yeah. there's, you know, we, 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 we're very, you know, we have strong conviction of preserving 
raw materials and preserving, you know, the resources in the world for future generations. So if you're going to use paper, make sure it's certified paper by certain bodies. I'm not going to mention technical terms. So you're net growers of trees because then there's no issue with paper. So that's important to us. If you're going to line a coffee cup, don't line it with fossil fuels. Line it with a water-based or a plant-based lining. So we take plants, polymerize it, and line the cup with a plant-based lining. If you're going to, even if you go, you know, SCG or the stadium around the corner over here, you'll get a beer cup. It looks like a piece of plastic. It's clear, but it's 100% derived from plants. So just complete reluctance for any type of fossil fuel impact on our business. So no more oil or plastics and pure plant-based resources. So I guess we, we, we feel the, the, the philosophy is if a thousand years ago we didn't have the issues, and you, you can believe in climate change or you don't. I mean, there are two camps of people. But whatever you do or don't believe in, it's logical that we can get rid of all resources for future generations. There could be no more trees. There could be no more, you know, potentially, you know, maybe finite fuel. That's some people believe that's a conspiracy theory. But resources can get depleted if you use a resource that you can rapidly renew. You can use the whole world's sugarcane, and in three months it grows back. That's the philosophy. Make sure you're using resources so you're not depleting them for future generations. And then there's this. This uh, obsession right now with end of life, which is important. We don't want to send product to landfill. Landfill is the third largest polluter in the world outside, if it was a country, outside of China and the USA. So how do we divert? How do we look at our waste and say, that's gold, you know, that's value. Let's use that as opposed to just bury it for the rest of our lives. That's the philosophy behind our product. Can you see a day when, when for example, when I go to buy my bottle of milk, if I'm just getting cow's milk or whatever milk I'm buying, that it is sold in one of these plant-based bottles? No, it's more, it's more the disposable packaging market, and it's bleeding into the shelves of our supermarkets. We've done a deal with one of the two largest um, uh, supermarkets in the country. When their bakery, we put you know plant-based pulp bases for their cakes and their biscuits. And so it's bleeding into it. Okay, I see the day where it's either reusable or compostable, and compostable means that it's obviously derived from plants. I see that day. I believe in that day. But reusable means I take it back and refill it. It has to be convenient. The problem with reusable right now is that, not necessarily, it means that you take it off the shelf. If it's convenient, yep. and this is more of a dream, and I mean, this is really my passion in the next, like, say, decade, you take it off the shelf. So I buy take a bottle of milk? Yeah. Oh, so if big. milk's one buck, you probably pay $1.20 and yep. there's a 20 cent hold. Yep. And all you do when you return it, you tap your credit card and you return, the, and you return it. That makes sense. Well, and there's a bin you throw it in. Correct, and there's a returnable bin. You throw it in. We, it's a massive infrastructure. This is a massive project in the whole of Australia, and 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 I want to push it and 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 try and make it happen. Because yeah, you need infrastructure to 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 return it. You need infrastructure to collect it, to wash it, sanitize it. You know, I mean, we just came out of COVID where there was a major issue with regards sanitizing product and making sure that it's you know food safe, and then putting it back into production so you can reuse the product. Same as a dispose. If you you drinking from a coffee cup, if you into into a coffee shop and they gave you. A, a reusable coffee coffee cup, and you just tap your credit card. I don't know about the scanning; that's cumbersome, and some people just just a little hole in your credit card, and then you went into a Woolworths or a Coles or a or a, or a Westfield shopping centre or dropped it at a Seven Eleven service station, and there were bins all over where you just dropped it in, and tapped your card, and the tiny it, it deposit was released. Yep. So we could pick it up, wash it, sanitise it, and return it. Um, it sounds look; it's a big project, and I, and I think it's a it's 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 massively ambitious, but I truly believe in my heart that that's where we're going. Either that or where you can't have a reusable product, make sure that we can push our legislators and our country to make sure everything is compostable so we can take the product, put it in our green bin at home, and in, 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 in five or six weeks, it's, it's soil food, it's compost. I mean, my, my bin's a yellow bin for my, my compostables. And um, 
And I often, uh, sometimes I forget. I mean, I, I try my best to do it properly, uh, to be a, a proper citizen um, or, or a responsible citizen. Um, and sometimes I forget. And uh, I think, oh, shit. And then I know the, the garbo's coming, you know, on Friday and it's Thursday and I'm putting the garbage out and it's raining on Friday morning. I think, oh, bloody hell, I put the wrong things in the wrong. Um, and sometimes I don't go and fix it up. Um, what do you? What is your view on being responsible as a as a recycler, for example? I mean, like, just a normal citizen like me. I think it's very, very um, confusing. Uh, unfortunately, the confusion is it's it's more than just the consumer. It's just more than just the person you know at their household. We've got so much infrastructure to build in Australia. And, and the government are very aware of it. I feel like they sort of woke up, if you like, about three, four years ago, and now they really are on a really determined path to make sure that they build infrastructure because we don't have the right infrastructure. Because we're pushing it out overseas. Just put it in a container, shipping it off to China and yeah. saying, oh, it's been recycled, and it wasn't. And they don't want it anymore. Well, in 2017, 18, they had, they, 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 they had a project name for it where they said, that's it. Yeah. We're not taking the world's rubbish. We, we can't, we, we're not doing much with it. We can't do anything. That forced us in Australia to start building infrastructure, to start rethinking. You know, producers need to be responsible and think, how do we remake our products to make sure that there is a responsible end of life? And that started the process. I, I, I would say that we've from 2008, we have the same product and the same philosophy. So if you like, I believe that... It's great that now everybody's trying to thinking in the same direction. You know, my, my, my work levels have come, not, I've directed them elsewhere, but my education is not as heavy as it used to be. I used to go out and say the same thing four times a day, and people used to not really understand what I said. To be honest, I think most people started buying our product for a feel-good factor. No, not, be, not because they, and maybe a commercial, maybe it was an advantage for them to sell, oh, we've got the biopack or we've got the compostable cup and maybe they thought they'd sell more coffees. Today, it's a genuine belief is we have to change. So yeah, I think, Australia have a, a huge task to rebuild infrastructure. Once they do, you a consumer don't have to worry because consumers, you know, people, they're lazy. If you look at plastic bins, if you look at your bin that goes to landfill, which is your red bin, I assume, yeah. and it differs all over the country. Yeah, in my case, red bin. Yeah. There's so much that is in there that shouldn't be in there. It is up to the consumer. It's also up to the infrastructure builders and the government. We can. In, let, let me give you an example. In your plastics bin, you put all plastic into a bin, there are seven different types of plastic. There's PP, polypropylene, polyethylene, um, there's recycled uh, um, PVC, there's seven, and a scanner can determine what each one is and divert it. That's the type of infrastructure we need to invest in for all, for compostable products in Australia. Because even if it is in the wrong bin, we should be able to sort it. But yes, we'd love the consumer to be, or the, or the, or the household owner, to be a lot more responsible. It'll make life easier, specifically for compostable products, because we don't want contamination. We don't want in a compostable bin a battery or a nappy, stuff that makes it really hard for that whole load to go off to compost. But I don't want to get too technical. I think the country has a role to play in that sorting, and I definitely think the consumer needs to be better educated in that sort. So is the bio crew from uh, BioPack are you out there lobbying governments? Are you out there talking to governments a lot and basically hustling the shit out of them? That's that, that's that's most of what we do. So we started a non-profit. We've out of out of a drive for producer responsibility. We started a non-profit called Compost Connect, and so we have a whole team that we funded. And the government have a department called the. Uh, Product Stewardship Center for Excellence, and they've co-funded us, and we're just an education vessel. We're educating, we, we're going and we're educating corporates and business to say, look, it's possible. We're going to government, and and, and yeah, now government, we, we're showing, government can legislate on what they know. 
And sometimes it's a white paper that goes to government and says, here's what we believe is possible. What we're doing is we're actually doing it. If you look at what we're doing in South Australia, we've got shopping centres. We're having us. We're getting. We've got stadiums. We've got um, you know people in their homes putting product in their bin, going off to compost. So we're taking. We're making videos. Compost Connection is about taking all that collateral, making case studies, and presenting it to government so that legislators and people who are going to influence the direction of the country can say, "I can see what's possible. Now I can decide on legislation." And I can decide if my state, unfortunately, it's very state-based here. I wish it was federal-based, but it's not. Um, that's our job at Compost Connect and Biopack. So, yes, it is the bio crew, if you like, in a separate division. But even our salespeople going out, they're selling product. You know, We give webinars and we give lots of talks. The talk is about what the consumer behavior we have to change, about assisting the government on building infrastructure. So, again, we go out there selling a solution. A lot of the solution is not there, and we just have to push and push to make sure that that is built and to make sure that we can illuminate the solutions for those people that can make a difference. Gary Smith, it looks like he's now um, sort of evolved into Richie Vines. Like you sort of <laughs> nearly become the uh, 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 evangelist for the whole thing. Like, I mean, I, I, I don't mean in a bad way. Like, I mean, Biopack obviously works well on its own. It's, you know, you were the of operations, et cetera, that was your, your your gig. But it looks like you're sort of moving more across to where Richie Fiennes was originally. I think that was probably six or seven months into the into our establishment of our business. You know, I, I, I didn't know, so I didn't believe because I didn't know. And again, my, you know, as I said, my world is this. And all of a sudden I was exposed to this. Well, now my world is that. So, yeah, you know, from the beginning I believed in what we were doing and – and I, and, 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 and I guess a lot of people will start a businesses and, um, and believe in something passionately and it will fail. I was lucky. You know, I, like we, I did stay at the course, I would say that. And the course was long and it was hard. And, you know, it took us to 2011 just to, pay our, to, just to have enough money to pay our salary. So I used a lot and I was fortunate to have the capital to last up until that period. But then, yes, it was step by step, Mark. It was, okay, we, we always retained as much money as we can in the business. We never relied on external financing. We always retained as much money as we can in the business to build it. But we were fortunate that we, we just gradually gained momentum to build it. But never did I hustle, if you like, um, uh, it was always about selling what I believe the future would be and trying to influence people to change what they do. That was from, you know, the beginning. So maybe six months into it, once I fully understood impact on, on single-use disposable packaging and what was possible. So, like, I mean, I, I'll make this my last question, uh, Gary, if you don't mind, but what do you say to somebody or what do you say to those critics who say, well, it's all right for you, Gary, you've got a business doing really well um, and, and it's your game you have an interest in uh, making everybody think this way and living this way. You've got to live this way if you believe this way and pedal this way. It's okay for you. I'm running another business. I'm doing something completely different. I'm sort of living my life and I'm trying to survive. I often drop the plastic things in the red bin and, uh, you know, fuck it up and all that sort of stuff. Um, what do you say to those critics? I mean, how do you convert them over to sort of think more responsible and um, sort of rise above their daily grind lives where they feel as though they don't really have enough time to think the way that you think? You know, I, I, often when, um, and this is with somebody who's starting a business or, or, or trying to build a business, you know, I often think if you think about something and it really makes you tired, you know, when you really got something, you think, how am I going to do that? And how am I going to build it? And how am I going to do it? Don't. 
You know, it, it has to make logical sense to people. If it's if it's something that they're really struggling with, okay, if it doesn't make complete sense to them, my advice is probably don't do it. It, it really, it has to gel in your own mind and be simple in your own mind. Maybe hard work, maybe a long path, but the solution has to be very crystal clear to you and then go for it. I, I don't have a good answer when people don't believe in it, when people don't um, understand it, when people don't um, see the end goal. Because in my life, when I've ever come across something that didn't make sense to me, or I often say to people, if it makes me tired when I think about it, I'm just not going to do it. If it's really that difficult for me to conceive, um, I lose patience with long stories. So if it's short and concise in my head and I can see a path, I'll take that path. So I don't know how to convince somebody who's starting a business or, or trying to build their business and doesn't believe and see simple steps, maybe many, many, many cents, but see simple steps to the end goal. I don't know. It, and But how do you feel about yourself now? Um, you know, an Australian, uh, a South African immigrant coming to Australia in the 90s. Um, tough time too, by the way, coming out of South Africa. Um, and, uh, you know, there was a lot of reasons why a lot of people left South Africa. Um, been through a few business startups here. You're killing it now with Biopack. You're on a real mission to change behaviours. When you look back at the Gary of the past, the younger Gary, how do you feel? I don't often look back, to be honest. And... Um... I just feel there's so much more to do. I like, um, I'm not tired. I've still got energy. I've still got passion. I, I just look forward. I think to myself, there's so much more that we can be doing, that we should be doing, that I can be, on a personal basis, I want to build. I want to build a bigger business. I want to build a more successful business. Um, if I if, Sometimes when I have time to look back, um, I look back at what I've done wrong, not what I've done right. Maybe it's a, you know, uh, ask my kids. They do 99% right, but I'm only noticing the 1% they do wrong. Ask my staff. <laughs> you know, they'll come in with a huge deal at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, but if it's a 4 o'clock meeting to pick up why we did something wrong, I don't even mention the big deal they just sealed them. It's a, it's not a great personality trait, but looking back is what I could have done better and, and then helping me go forward. Maybe one day when, and uh, I, like I, I think I often say to people when they're sitting, or having a Zoom call with me. They say, well, what about your future in the business? And I point the camera to me. I said, this is me now. And I point the floor next to me. I said, that's the next stage for me when I fall over and I'm dead on that floor. That's going to be in 50 years' time. But looking back is what I've done wrong. And sometimes I feel guilty what I've done wrong or, or what I've done incorrectly. And, what, and it's about how I do it better going forward, not necessarily saying I've done all this good wrong because I just feel like there's so much more to do. Is it okay to be tough on yourself though? Uh, it's a personality trait. Is it okay? Probably not. For you, it's okay. For me, it's okay on me. It doesn't, it doesn't depress me. It just, it drives me. It, it makes me thrive. But it's absolutely, it's okay to be tough on yourself if that's your personality. But are you a perfectionist then? To an unbelievably irritating uh, degree, yes. Yeah. But, that's, what, but that works for you. You know, constantly people will walk into my office and say, we've got a problem. And they hate saying that. Uh, because I say, well, slow down. I've got this philosophy. When there's a leak, people put buckets, I repair the roof. So it'll take me 25 minutes to step back to where the roots of the problems were, to understand how many other people those impacted, how many other customers that's impacted, how many other products we might have issues with, and then build the process of making sure it never happens again. So absolutely, I believe, do it 100% correct all the time. And I think it's a great trait to be a perfectionist. I don't think it's a bad trait. Would you say to somebody who's looking at a startup, a new business, and um they don't know how to perfect all the steps. Should they just have a go now, kick it off, get it started and backfill? Or should they wait till they perfect or get close to the perfection of the proposition before they kick it off? 
Yeah, I think what I was describing is operationally trying to make it perfect. Absolutely, give it a go. That's you in the absolutely hustle days. Absolutely, give it a go. You know, we got we got some partners in our business now. They've got a massive business offshore, expanding offshore. I did with some partners. I was so excited when I went there. They had all these people and launching new products. They did market research and they did testing and they did all these things and they tested different substrates. And I thought, wow! I actually went across. I thought, I've got this at my availability. It's amazing. Okay. Then I found out they took eleven months to launch a product. I'll take two. And if I get it wrong, I'll fix it. So no, absolutely. So backfilling is the way to go. Absolutely. Do it, but prepare to make be prepared to make mistakes. Hundred percent. And then fix the mistakes. Yeah, but you got to have some conviction in what you're doing is correct. Yep. And then you definitely will make mistakes, but don't like you know path to market and time to market is really important in what you do. So yeah, absolutely, get it done, uh, launch to market, and fix it if it doesn't work. Are there some minimum uh, parameters that they should at least have before they go to market? I don't think so. I think that um, I think procrastination and everyone wakes up in the morning with a great idea. I honestly believe everyone has a billion dollar idea when they wake up in the morning. Execution is everything and procrastination is a killer. So rather make the mistake, rather lose the money and, you know, rather die trying or lose money trying, not die trying. You know, I, I, I have no advice for when it goes wrong. Um, potentially someone listens to this and then goes and loses 50 grand, only 50 grand they got and I apologize. But it's the only way I think to go forward is just give it a bash and don't procrastinate because you'll just never get out of first gear. Gary Smith from Biopack. Thanks very much. Thank you for having me, Mark. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Mentor with Mark Boris. Audio and production is by Jessica Smalley. Production assistance, Simon McDermott. This is a Mentored Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.